And this is a roundabout answer, but my, about a week before, no, about two weeks before he died, my father gave me a book. And the book was a book by Camus, um, who was one of his favorite writers. My father, after my uncle's death, went through a period of kind of reassessment of his own sort of relationship with God and with the Catholic Church and religion. And he never rejected the Catholic Church. He always embraced it. But he began to look for meaning in other areas, in poetry and in Shakespeare, and uh, and particularly in the existentialists. So he, he, and one of the existentialists was Camus. And Camus had written this book called The Plague. My father gave it to me, and he told me with this kind of peculiar intensity, I want you to read this. And he had given me, he always gave me stuff to read and poetry and stuff, but he said this with this, uh, with this directness that after he died, I ended up reading that book about three times trying to figure out kind of what the message was that he was, you know, he was trying to give me. And, um, and the book is about a doctor who is in a city in North Africa where there is an unnamed plague ravaging the city. It's a walled city and it's quarantined. And the city is, a, the plague is something nobody's ever seen before. And most of the people who get it are dying. So there's a huge infection fatality rate. And this is, and the, a lot of the book, the beginning is this conversation the doctor is having to himself as he's locked, you know, in his room. And he's, uh, he's trying to say, I don't want to go out there because if I go out there, I'm going to catch it. And I can't really help these people anyway because we don't know, you know, anything about this disease. We don't know how to treat it. And everybody gets it dies. So why, you know, why don't I just stay here and wait it out? And then in the end, he ends up leaving and he he ends up just comforting people. And, uh, and they, you know, they... Uh, Camus was an existentialist, which are kind of the legates of the of the Greek and um, and Roman tradition of Stoicism. And what he was saying about this doctor is, the doctor had brought order to the chaos of this what was happening in the city through by doing his own duty and going out and how and being of service to other people, even at great sacrifice to himself. And the, the kind of the, the iconic hero of Stoicism is Sisyphus. And Sisyphus is, uh, is condemned by the gods because he does a good deed for humanity to, for eternity, to push a rock up a hill. And then when he gets to the top of the hill of the boulder, always, he can never get it over the top. It always rolls back down and, and on top of him and kind of mangles him. And then he goes up and does it again. But in the... In the Stoic cosmology, Sisyphus is a happy man because he put his his shoulder to the stone. He was given a duty, and he does his duty, and um, and that and that 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 self sacrifice that he makes brings order to a chaotic universe. And you know we're all living in a kind of chaotic universe. So for me to have kind of a concrete task that I know is right. You know, and I'm open to criticism. I have a critical mind. If somebody shows me where I got it wrong, I'll change. I'm not dug in. I'm not hard-headed in that sense. But until somebody shows me that, I'm going to try to help these children. And, you know, and I feel like it's a gift. 
So, and the more people heap abuse on me, um, the more, the bigger the gift is in some way. Was the the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, was that the first time, uh, and because it happened during the pandemic, I, I, that was the first time I noticed a break in the narrative where more people were paying attention to you and more, people weren't dismissing you as easily anymore. And the book itself was a critical hit um, amongst yeah, a lot. Yeah, the book sold a million copies, I think, in three months. Amongst the people with that I no read reviews. It. Yeah. Um, and with a lot of, you know, I mean, really people going out of there, the mainstream corporate media going out of its way to ignore it. And how many copies did it sell? It sold a million copies in three months. And then it's all, you know, since then, I don't know how many, but it's continued to kind of hover up, you know, in the top, you know, 100 on Amazon. Most of the booksellers wouldn't sell it. Like the independent booksellers, Barnes & Noble, uh, took it out of most of their stores. They wouldn't sell it in most of their stores. And the Which independent booksellers almost all boycotted it. It's the only place you could really reliably get it was Amazon. It was odd because those are people who are usually against censorship. Yeah. And yet they were, you know, that this, 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 you know, all of this weird stuff happened with the censorship then where people, yeah. I know, you know, you consider yourself a liberal in most, and, you know, as do I, um, but, um, but what it means to be a liberal has changed in a, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, uh, it is, uh, it's not uh, about the social issues as much as it is about this, uh, subscribing to whatever the orthodoxy or whatever the ideology preaches and it seems like when it comes to things like vaccines like that is something you never question and this is the the name that shall not be uttered yeah yeah and and when you start questioning things people get angry at you they don't want to hear it they don't want to talk about it unless they know someone has been injured and when that happens generally people have an open mind and they start to change. And I think so many people know so many people that have been injured now that they're a little more critical. And then shows like Dope Sick and then all these different articles where you see like the Sackler family bought off immunity. They, they can't get prosecuted. They, they gave up like $6 billion out of how many whatever billions they made selling these things that they knew absolutely to be addictive. It's... um. There's enough people now that feel duped that they're willing to open their mind. There's still some people that have they're dug in, and that's what's going to be interesting about this. It is interesting because yeah. it's unclear to me. If you want some tea? We got a cup right there. Yeah, it's unclear to me how a uh, how how an orthodoxy unravels. Yeah, you know because I mean, man, Mark Twain said it. I think it was Mark Twain. Yeah, said it that it's easier. To fool somebody than to persuade. It's easier to fool a man than to persuade him that he's been fooled. Right. Once they swallow, it, yeah. they they don't want to relinquish it because That's ego. Yeah, or ego, ego or, or it just threatens their, you know, their worldview. And and there's so many things that are threatening about believing the counter narrative that you know you and I now are seeing. Um, because then, can I trust my doctor? Can I trust, you know, the, the authorities? Can I trust my country and all of that? And it's really this the entire 
cosmology around which we've kind of, you know, weaved and constructed our lives. The, the whole foundations are, you have to start questioning everything, and most people don't want to do that. It's just, it's, uh, you know, I think it's terrifying, and I understand that. You know, I see it in my family. Yeah. It's certainly bizarre. It's bizarre to witness. It's bizarre to witness because, uh, you know, I've, I've witnessed it with people that I, I you know, I was a fan of intellectually. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing them buy into this and, I, and then I see these telltale signs of them not willing to adjust with, with new data, with new information and understanding that they've been duped and still digging their heels in because they, they've already defended themselves once. So now they defend themselves and then now they double down and then now they seek out all these. I've seen people defend the natural spillover hypothesis, which at this point seems kind of ridiculous. You know, and Michael Schellenberger actually just published something today about that where there's even more evidence that it was from the, the very lab that they think it's yeah. from. Yeah. 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 Well, those conversations too, the email conversations after it was it had happened and then the conversations with Fauci and Rand Paul were infuriating. Those yeah. those were infuriating. <laughs> they were so crazy. Senator, you do not know what you are talking about. This yeah. appeal appeal to authority this try, trying to diminish what he's saying when uh what he's saying is what people have been quietly saying that understood what was going on. But I mean, you. Uh, I mean, did you lose friendships like personally? Yeah, friends? but that was okay. What? Not much. <laughs> Not no one I really liked. Yeah, it was. Uh, did you just discover that you didn't like them? Or? No, I just <laughs> I knew there was a lot of cowards. I knew I had like casual relationships with some cowards, and uh, some of them attacked me. And I'm like, good. Now I don't have to talk to you anymore. Got a lot of friends. I'm very happy. Yeah. So for me, it was fine. And then most of my friends who are comics, uh, a lot of comics and a lot of jujitsu guys, uh, very like-minded in, in in their approach to this thing. They they weren't really interested in becoming an experiment. And uh, a lot of them because they were touring a lot, and a lot of them because they're in clubs a lot, and they, they were getting it, and they they already had it. And so this uh, idea that even after getting it and getting over it, that somehow or another they had to get injected, and it didn't make any sense to them. They're like, why? Like, this doesn't, this doesn't follow what even the studies are showing about natural immunity due to pre, prior, uh, previous infection. Because they had a previous infection, they, they knew that there was supposedly, at, at some point in time, was, the studies were showing that it was seven times more effective than getting a vaccine. And the vaccine, the effectiveness it was showing, it was very short. And even then, people, even after I got over COVID, I had people that I like, that I admired, they were telling me you should get vaccinated now. I said, why? why? This is, make it make sense to me. Sanjay Gupta said that to me. I'm like, make it make sense to me. Why should I do it? Because you'd be even more, more protected. I go, I got over it quick. I got over it in three, I made a video in three days and it looked too good. So CNN put a filter on it and made me look yellow on TV. <laughs> Did you see that? No. You never saw that? No. Oh, no I, I, I totally believe that. I'm going to show it to you just because it's so ridiculous. Just so you can see it. Because it's so ridiculous. Because three days later, I had, I had one day where I felt like shit. The next day I felt better. And then the day after that, I make this video. And I was saying essentially that I had to cancel the shows that I was doing with Dave Chappelle that weekend. Uh, but, so that's the top one is the CNN version, <laughs> and that the, the bottom one is the real version. 
This is me outside in Texas, so it's nice and sunny out. And look what they did to my face. They made me look like I was ill. That looks like a, da- a cadaver. It's crazy what they did. Yeah. It's very bizarre. But the fact that that's a news organization that did that is so terrifying because it's such a trivial thing. And that they concentrated on this one uh, medication that my doctor prescribed for me, which was ivermectin. They didn't concentrate on all the other stuff that I took. They didn't concentrate on the z pack They didn't concentrate on the prednisone. They didn't concentrate on the um, monoclonal antibodies or the IV drip of vitamins that I did and yeah. NAD, the uh, NAD plus cocktail. I did a lot of stuff. Yeah, I did all the same stuff. Yeah, and I got better quick. Yeah, and, me too. But, but no one cared that I got better. That was not the narrative. The narrative is like Joe Rogan is taking veterinary medication and then Rolling Stone printed an article saying that these hospital emergency rooms were getting overrun with people overdosing on horse medication and gunshot victims had to wait in line. Well, first of all, how many people are getting gunshot in yeah, Oklahoma? What the fuck is going on? Yeah, and they're waiting in line. <laughs> also, when you're showing the, the line that they use for the graphic, it was people wearing winter coats. And it, it had nothing yeah, I, to I do with somebody, that. I somebody track down where that real photo came yeah. from. It had nothing to do nothing with it. Nothing to do with it. It's that. just fraud. But it's crazy that somehow or another that snuck through Rolling Stone. Well, Rolling Stone has made a big change. You know, the guy who runs that now is a guy called Noah Schlackman. And I used to have a great relationship. You know, I grew up with Jan and, and um, his kids and stuff, and I published there a lot. But the, he, the guy who runs it now is a guy with deep connections to the intelligence community and, you know, is, uh, is, is really uh, deep, deep in the orthodox. It's not a counterculture magazine anymore. It's now a, it's now a culture, you know, it's in, in the center. But... Um, Oh, the one thing I wanted to mention to you, you know, one of the incredible studies that came out, which is not surprising, uh, but the Cleveland Clinic study. Yeah, we which, talked about that recently. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and it, it I think I, I read it, I could be wrong about this, but I just was reading the abstract for somebody the other day, and it looked like, I mean, what that study shows is that the vaccine gives you some protection in the, for the first two months. But then it wanes precipitously, and it wanes into negative efficacy after seven months. So, in other words, if you got vaccine, you're more likely to get sick. It does the opposite. But this is what Fauci said at the very beginning. If you go back and look at his tapes, it could make you actually more susceptible. Yeah. And that is exactly what it does. Um, and it, but what it's what that study shows: the more vaccines you get, the more likely it is that you're going to get sick. And that um, the people who are most vaccinated have 3.5 times the rate, and I could be wrong about this, but I think this was said 3.5 times uh, the the risk of illness that that people who are unvaccinated. So I mean that's that's not a good profile for you know a medical product. No. It's I mean, not. We would have done better if they'd just given everybody vitamin D. But what I found was really fascinating. There was a lot of people after I got sick that wanted me to immediately get vaccinated to join the team. That's what it seemed like they wanted me to do. Yeah. It seemed like there was a battle for the, some sort of ideological high ground, and they wanted me to say, wow, I should have gotten vaccinated. I'm like, look, I've had diseases that were worse than this. I've had the flu that was worse than this. But also, 
I'm aware of ways to treat certain colds and flus and things. You can actually do things yeah. to, to improve your immune system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And also, uh, yeah. you know, I had a maddening conversation with uh, Peter Hotez once. Uh, well, he's, that guy is, is um, I, I mean, it's, it's hard just watching a guy sit there and tell things that he's got to know are not true. I don't know if he knows they're not true, but he's a strange example. Because when I was talking to him, he's overweight, and I, I asked him, does, does he eat well? He doesn't. He's saying, you know, he, he, he likes junk food. He eats junk food too much. He doesn't exercise. Very walks a little, he was saying. He doesn't take vitamins. And I was like, this is a crazy conversation. So you're advocating for this experimental mRNA vaccine technology and you don't even do anything else to improve your immune system? Like you don't do, there's all the studies on vitamins, on whether it's vitamin C, vitamin D, you know, exposure to sunlight increases your vitamin D as well. It's very good for the immune system. There's all these studies on this. There's, there's plenty of studies on what happens to people when they're nutrient deficient as well. Like you're, all of your systems are functioning yeah. incorrectly. And there's also studies on people that got administered to the ICU with COVID. It's somewhere in the neighborhood, above 70% were deficient in vitamin D. Yeah. Oh, I think it was over 90%. Yeah. It's, it's to have a conversation with someone who doesn't yeah. take vitamins and is telling you you have to take this medication. It's like, this is a crazy conversation because you know what health is. Like, metabolic health yeah. is, is a very nuanced thing, and there's a lot going on with it. And it has a lot to do with what you put in your body, it has a lot to do with the foods you consume, it has a lot to do with exercise and drinking water, it has a lot to do with your electrolyte balance, it has a lot to do with the nutrient content of your diet. So, if you're, if you're not doing any of that, and you're yeah. telling everybody they got to get jabbed. This is a crazy conversation. <laughs> well, that, all that you know, metadata that I that I was talking about in the Geyer study, you know, it, it, and it's really interesting that the graphs that go along with it. One of the you know the graphs they go through each disease and they show when the disease was killing people, and then there's this huge decline, and then it goes flat, so it's not killing anybody more. Then the vaccine is introduced. Yeah. And it's disease after disease after disease, the same thing happened. That it was, it's all because people started getting better nutrition and their immune systems were okay. And if you look at the kids in Africa who die from measles or these other infectious diseases, they're all malnourished. In fact, the only people really dying from measles in the 60s before they introduced the vaccines, I think the, the the death rate had gone down to like a, from you know tens of thousands per year to a, like a couple of hundred a year. This was by '63, and they were all kids. Most of them were kids in the Mississippi Delta, black kids, severely malnourished, and they were dying of measles. And you know this was before the war on poverty, before my father visited Delta. And, um, you know, it's hard for a disease to kill a healthy person. It's hard for an infectious disease to kill a healthy person with a rugged immune system. Well, not the Spanish flu, though, right? Well, the Spanish flu was not a virus. You know, and even um, Fauci now acknowledges that. And, they, you know, there's, there's good evidence that the Spanish flu, there's, there's you know, not, not a definitive but very, very strong evidence 
Uh, the Spanish flu was vaccine-induced flu. The, the, the deaths were uh, vaccine-induced, but the, the de- originally they said it was a flu. But when they've gone back and actually they have all the, sam- the samples from thousands of people, they died from bacteriological uh, pneumonia. So they died as a consequence of something that you could cure today with, with antibiotics. Ampicillin. Okay. So uh, when we say, but they still, so what was their, so they, you're saying they had a compromised immune system already, but why? Well, but, but a lot of the, you know, bacteriological illnesses can kill you. Yeah. Is that a lot of the viral illnesses, you know, if you're super healthy, it's pretty hard for them to kill you. I mean, I, and I'm just saying this not on any individual basis, but on a population basis. If you look at populations that are well nourished, you don't see uh, infectious disease mortalities anymore. So, and that's across, you know, I don't think anybody would argue with that. So what are you, what are you saying that the Spanish flu was? And like, what is the, the documentation? The, uh, you know, I... You said that Fauci has publicly admitted that it's not a flu. Fauci wrote an article in 2008, and uh, that, I'm pretty sure it's 2008, in which he acknowledged that it was not the flu that was killing those people. It was a bacteriological infection. And a bacteriological infection, these days, you could 100% cure all of it with an antibiotic. But so, but something was making them ill and to make them vulnerable to and the that, bacterial that's unclear. And you know, I read an article recently, and, and you can look up these articles pretty easily. But there, the, the article that I read made a very strong case that the illness came from testing a new vaccine in Kansas at a military base in Kansas. And I, again, I'm a little hazy on the details. But this is important to cover, right? So right. let's see if we can find this. Predominant role of bacterial pneumonia as cause of death in pandemic influenza that's, implications. That's yeah, of uh, pandemic influenza preparedness. So what this is saying is that bacterial pneumonia was the cause of death, but these people obviously they were saying that they had they were sick before this correctly correct is that true you know what i i you know i shouldn't talk about this joe okay so this is what i don't remember enough about let's, it let's read what he says the results post-mortem samples were examined from people who died of influenza during the 1918 to 1990 1919 rather uniformly exhibited severe changes indicative of bacteria bacterial pneumonia bacteriologic and histopathologic results from published autopsy series clearly and consistently implicated secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria in most influenza fatalities. Yeah, and, and some people have suggested that came from getting people to wear masks. Oh, Jesus. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. How would that be? That the mask the became bacteria, a, a, a media a for bacteria. <sighs> Conclusions, the majority of deaths from the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic likely resulted directly from secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria. Less substantial data from the subsequent 1957 and 1968 pandemic are consistent with these findings. If severe pandemic influenza is largely a problem of bacterial, viral bacterial 
co-pathogenesis, pandemic planning needs to go beyond addressing the viral cause alone. Example, influenza vaccines and antiviral drugs. That's hilarious. Uh, Prevention, diagnosis, prophylaxis, and treatment of secondary bacterial pneumonia as well as stockpiling of antibiotics and bacterial vaccines should be high priorities for pandemic planning. Yeah, he didn't remember that. Yeah. But... um let me let me ask you something that you were talking about before, because you said a lot of the comedians, um, you know, were uh, were just skeptical. But yes. what, what I saw was the opposite. You know, I saw the comedians that should have been questioning everything. You know, that were that were falling sort of in line, canceling people who ask questions and including all the ones you know john stewart and stephen colbert they kind of stopped i thought they stopped being funny because they you know comedians are funny when they're when they're ridiculing authority and well they all had to stop doing that the that only point. one i know out of that group is john i know john and john's a great guy i have not talked to him i talked to him um in the middle of it all i haven't talked to him since but i i thought it was hilarious when he was on colbert and he was doing that routine. that was really good yeah that yeah. was hilarious I ha- I try to stay off Twitter because I I generally think, especially when it comes to things like uh, that are uh, high anxiety subjects, whether it's climate change, the war in Ukraine, or um, COVID. Uh, I think it facilitates mental illness, and I think a lot of these people are um, they they fester on things, and they 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 have high anxiety. And when you subject them to being locked inside their home, and you offer them only one way out, and that way is this vaccine, and they trust the science because they're smart people. Smart people trust the science, and they they believe that you know we have to all and be in this together. And you're a good person if you go out and get vaccinated. So you show your your picture on your little Instagram page, got vaccinated, and everybody knows you're a good person and then there's this sort of feedback loop and then they start attacking people that differ from this and then they start you know calling you my mother died from this or my grandmother died from this as if you somehow or another did it not the fucking people that did this crazy research in Wuhan, China, and then lied about it. And then we're, we're like, no one's mad at them. For the same people yeah. who are mad at comedians for questioning it were applauding Fauci, even though there was all these, there's clear conversations that showed that, yes, they were doing what, what we consider to be gain-of-function research there. Yes, the NIH funded this. Yes, this is all true. And when he's being confronted by Rand Paul, and you, you see him like he's essentially just lying in front of the American people. He's just, and the same people that generally are these critical thinkers, they were so enamored by this narrative and then so captive by it, and then also captive by their initial assertions. They're a prisoner of their, of their initial statements on it, and they didn't want to say they were wrong. It took a lot of people a long time. To say I fucked up. This that's not true. It's not. I, Has I was anybody wrong. actually said that to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A good friend of mine. Yeah, very good friend of mine who got really scared and got vaccinated and thought I was being an idiot. And then along the way, started paying attention and and got COVID really bad. You know, and I helped him out and sent the nurse to them and got him IV vitamins and it's it's just one of those things where uh, it's a stress test. 
It's a stress test for people's character. It's a stress test for anxiety levels. It's a stress test for community bonds. It's a stress test for friendships. It's a stress test. And you get to see. You get to see what it was like. And I feel, uh, honestly, even though I was in the center of it all, I felt very fortunate because uh, I, I can have no questions about how it actually works, how the system actually works to go against people that are dissenters. I can have no questions because I was in the middle of it. I saw it. I saw it happen. I saw the CNN thing where they made my face yellow and said I was taking <laughs> horse medication, which is that the most – to say that and repeat that over and over again is such a clear indication that they conspired. It's such a because it's this it's uniform. It's horse dewormer uniform, a medication that's used far more often on human beings. It's been prescribed to for billions. Yeah, it's insane. And the uh, fact and that won, and won the Nobel Prize for for efficacy in humans. Yeah, in humans. Yeah, it was wild. It was just but wild. They had, to they had to do it. They had to discredit ivermectin. Because, you know, uh, because there's a federal law, the federal law, the emergency use authorization statute says that you cannot issue, you cannot issue an emergency use authorization to a vaccine if there is an existing medication that has been approved for any purpose that, ha that is demonstrated effective against the target illness. So they had to destroy ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and discredit and they had to tell everybody it's not effective because if they had acknowledged that it's effective in anybody the whole 200 billion dollar vaccine enterprise would have collapsed it's um it's a very strange and difficult to navigate subject because there's so many studies and there's a lot of studies that seem to point to the fact that ivermectin doesn't work well for people that have covid yeah, I, I, you know, we've looked at all the studies and we, you know, there's, there's over a hundred studies on ivermectin and, you know, I, I think they're on our website, on CHC's website. And then there were a series of studies and this is what they always do. This is what they did with autism. They design studies to fail. So they, you know, in fact, they design studies, and the way they design them to fail is by giving people lethal doses of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, in, in Brazil, the researchers were charged with homicide, you know, and that was one of those, they, I, I forget whether it was called the Solidarity Study, but it was one of the studies that was commissioned by WHO, paid for by Bill Gates and his people, and... Um, and that, you know, they were literally giving people four or five times the uh, prescribed doses of, of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in order. And, you know, these were elderly people on their deathbeds. And a lot of them could not take that level of toxicity and died. And so then they were able to say, oh, it kills people. But it wasn't killing anybody they gave the prescribed doses to. And, you know, and Gates knew what the prescribed dose was for hydroxychloroquine because his uh, because he, his foundation gives it to hundreds of millions of people every year in Africa for malaria control. And so it wasn't, you know, it's hard to say that it was a mistake that they were overdosing these people. So it was a, a situation where you have the emergency use authorization and that won't work if you have a medication that also works. And then you have this medication that also works that happens to be generic. Yeah, that costs five cents a pill. 
instead of $3,000 a dose like remdesivir. Yeah. So remdesivir, the reason they like remdesivir is because remdesivir, you have to get, you give IV in the hospital um, at end of, you know, at the end of life. It's not prophylactic. And they didn't want something that was prophylactic or early cure. Because that would have meant they, they would have, the whole vaccine issue, you know, would have fallen apart. Remdesivir was crazy because remdesivir in 2019, so right before the pandemic, Fauci had remdesivir in a, in a, in a Ebola trial with four other drugs in Africa. And the IRB, the, the, you know, the safety panel that, you know, you have to have a safety panel um, for, it's called the Institutional Review Board for every clinical trial. The safety panel stopped, stepped in and pulled remdesivir out because it was killing so many people. It was, it was killing more people than Ebola. Ebola kills 53% of the people who get it. And this, and the remdesivir was doing worse. So why would you take that out of an Ebola, that got thrown out of an Ebola trial and give it to people with a disease that has an infection fatality rate of 1%? Well, it's insane. I would say that's insane if I didn't know that there was a history of doing similar things. Yeah. And the AIDS crisis with AZT. Yeah. AZT, which was initially a chemotherapy medication that was killing people in a two-week dose. They were giving them two, two weeks of yeah. this stuff was killing people faster than AIDS was killing people. Yeah. And they went and took that. Or excuse me, what well, faster than cancer was killing people. And they went and took that and started it, giving it, it to people that had It was regarded as too AIDS. dangerous for to treat as a cancer. Right. As, with, with cancer, you give it, you know, in the simplest terms, you're giving a chemotherapy drug that is going to kill you. 100% of the time, it's going to kill you. And, you know, at least in those, at that era, because it's designed to kill human tissue. Right. And you're hoping that it will kill the tumor before it kills the, you know, the person. The and it was re it was it was thrown out as too dangerous to use for two weeks in chemotherapy, and now they're they they decided okay we're going to give it to people lifetime course of it to people of AIDS and of course it's going to kill you know anybody on it is going to kill. Well, the Arthur Ashe thing blew me away because I didn't know that Arthur Ashe was asymptomatic when he, when yeah. he had, and then he died right after he started taking AZT. And he said publicly, I don't want to be on this. I, don't, I think it's hurting me, but my doctor is going to get mad at me if I get off of it. And how many other people? How many people died from ACT? Well, Nuriev, too. It's the same thing. He was completely healthy, and they put him on ACT, and he died. Well, how many people did die? What was the overall number from ACT? I have to go back and read my book. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just the fact that that playbook existed, they've done it this way in the past and gotten away with it. And that when they have drugs that are approved and they already have these drugs, and if these drugs didn't work on that thing, they'll try them on this thing. And then they'll say, in the case of AZT, there's a video of Fauci saying, the reason why it's the only drug we recommend or the, that is prescribed is because it's safe and effective. Yeah. He actually said that about AZT. And he knew at that time. Which is a crazy thing. 
that the only way, the, the way, I mean, one of the tricks, one of the tricks they were using is the people who were getting the ACT, they were also giving blood transfusions to. Yes. Which were keeping them alive and making it seem, if you yeah. give somebody a blood transfusion, it's going to, you know, it perks them up and keeps you alive longer. And, um, and so they were keeping those people alive artificially in order to, you know, make the drug look like it actually was efficacious. That's the, the crazy thing is what they're allowed to do in studies. And uh, one of the first correspondence that you and I had was uh, we had read something where the, the, the description of why the COVID vaccines were 100% effective and what they used to make that distinction. It's not... No, like explain that. Explain that because it's such a bizarre. The way they do it, it seems yeah, like it I should mean, be illegal. What, what they did with the COVID vaccine is they they gave the COVID. For the, this is the Pfizer trial. We know a lot about the Pfizer trial because that was the one that was Pfizer was the one to get an approved vaccine. You know, it got the it did another trick. It got one of its vaccines approved, the Cominardi vaccine, but that vaccine was not available in this country. But they were able to say to people, oh, we have an approved vaccine, and that made it okay for the colleges and everybody else to force you to take an emergency use authorization vaccine, which is illegal. Nobody can t tell you to participate in a medical experiment. Um, and so they played this kind of shell game. But in order to get that, um, they they had to reveal their testing and what they what they te what they did was they gave uh, 22,000 people the vaccine and 22,000 similarly situated people the uh, placebo and in the after six months and they they actually they promised to do a five-year study but then they cut it back to two months or four months and, and unblinded it, you know, right at the beginning. So, which is total deception. There's now we don't know what any of the, you know, long-term effects are. There's a lot of impacts from these, um, the, from the vaccines like every other drug that have long diagnostic horizons and long incubation periods. And if you don't have a five-year placebo control trial, as Fauci himself has said, you need eight years, he said you're going to miss a lot and you could have mayhem and that's exactly so they what used the excuse that this pandemic was so deadly yeah, that they had to unblind the trial and yeah. give this medication to everyone otherwise it would be unethical yeah otherwise it'd be unethical so you think that that was done on purpose do you think that was done well, to i don't obscure? look at people's heads but right. it's it's not a good the optics are not good so um so what they did is they had 22,000 people got the vaccine, 22,000 had done it, and they have six months of data. Some of that is unblinded, but it's six months. And uh, during that six-month period in the vaccine group, one person died of COVID. And in the placebo group, two people died from COVID. So that allows Pfizer to tell the public and, you know, FDA to tell the public, oh, this vaccine is 100% effective because two is 100% of one. That is what insane. They, what they should have been telling Americans and what they're required to under the law is, is to give them a, a number that is called the NNTV, the number needed to vaccinate to save one life. How many people do you have to vaccinate to save one life? And the answer, of course, is you need to you need to vaccinate twenty two thousand people 
to save one life. So if you're going to if you are going to um, if you're going to vaccinate 22,000 people to save one life, you better make sure the vaccine itself is not killing anybody. Because if it kills one person for 22,000, you've now canceled out the entire benefit of the product. And when they looked at the key metric, which was all-cause mortality, in, in other words, how many people died of all, not just from COVID, but of all causes in the vaccine group, and how many died from all causes in the, in the placebo group? The placebo group had uh, had a, a 17 people die, and um, our, and the vaccine group had 21. So what that means is there were um, there were more people died in the vaccine group. That means you're... But didn't the placebo group eventually take the vaccine because they were unblinded? Yeah, they were unblinded, but they but they still gave us the data, the six-month data for the people. So it's all, I mean, there's total information. So it's chaos. during six months, though, right? And it's six months. It's six months of people that are adults. Some of them got it sooner, right. two or four months. But anyway, they gave us the six months of data for the two designated groups, and the you know the, it's an alarming result because there were four people who died of um, four to five people who died of cardiac arrest in the placebo in the vaccine group, and only one in the placebo group. What that means is, if you take the vaccine, you're you know 21 percent more likely to die over six months, according to this data. According to this data, which is you know, not good data and not enough of a big group, of a large enough group to really make these kind of predictions. But it's all they gave us. So they're stuck with this number. If you take the vaccine, you're 21% more likely to die of all causes. And, and when you look at the data, you see that there's four cardiac arrests, four to five, because one of them looks like a cardiac arrest, but it may not be. There's at least four cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and only one in the placebo group, which means if you take the vaccine, you're 400 more, 400 percent more likely to die of a cardiac arrest over the next six months uh, than if you didn't. So that's not a good you know, a product. You know, you wouldn't want to recommend that product, much less mandate it. And yet they did. You were explaining to me when we were outside before we came in here, I said I wanted to talk about it here instead. You, you were explaining how instead of using the VAIR system, that there's a method of analyzing a, a whole host of data to find out about deaths, how many coffins are ordered, how many, how many people die of heart attacks, strokes. There's, there's another way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the guy who kind of... Um, showed that to the world was Ed Dowd, and Ed Dowd was a, I, I, he was a, he was a big Wall Street um, guy, he was uh, one, I think he, he operated a, one of the portfolio companies for BlackRock, um, he grew it, and again, this, you know, this needs to be checked a little, and maybe James could, but I think he grew it from, you know, under a billion to $14 billion. He was a, a major player in Wall Street. And the way he did that was he he saw the 2008 crash coming because he's a numbers guy. He sees the world in terms of numbers. Uh, during the pandemic, he had no, no, no kind of early exposure to the medical freedom movement or anything else. He just started seeing data that made no sense to him. And it was uh, um, a lot of those 
was kind of the all was the all cause mortality deaths. He started seeing people dying after vaccination that shouldn't have been dying. You know, kids on the ball fields, all of these, you know, the athletes, etc. But he was looking at these non-conventional uh, data sources, like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry actuarial in, insurance industry data that showed excess deaths, particularly in younger groups, spiking after the vaccine and seeing it all over the world. And he ended up doing a book on this that is uh, that is designed to be read in. I think an hour or 90 minutes, and it's a book. It's an extraordinary book because it has all of these graphs that are um, that are incredibly convincing, compelling. Um, but it's a, it's the kind of book if you have a skeptic and you can get them to sit down for 90 minutes with this book. When they get up, they will uh, they will have converted. Mm. Um, and it has. One part of the book is, has like maybe a thousand photos of local newspapers reporting athletes dying on playing fields. These stories never made the national news, but the local papers were, were you know, because they, they'd happen at the local game. And the local papers were covering them. So there was no censorship in the local papers. And it's really, it's, uh, it's sickening. I mean, it's terrible. These, you know, these beautiful children who were dying on the playing field and COVID was killing people, but Here it was it old people. Yeah. Cause um, unknown, the epidemic of sudden deaths in 2021 and 2022. Edward Dowd. Yeah. Yeah. Died after first vaccine dose. Dies at hospital. Football died on the field. And yeah, none of this um, was reported. And there's, you know, there's now there's thousands and thousands of those stories. I think. Well, they were also, one of the also data kind of suppressed. Yeah, one of the data uh, points he, he went in and looked globally. People do die on playing fields. It's it's a pretty steady average of 29 per year for 30 years. And we were getting during the after vaccination, I think 29 per month. You know, so now here's the other concern. Um, it's not just the people that died. It's the people that suffer that are alive and that have an injury and that may it may have radically shortened their life. Well, there's 15 million Americans, according to um, the V-Safe data and the Rasmussen poll, 15 million Americans sought medical help after the vaccine. That's, you know, and then, you know, the VAERS, which uh, VAERS is unreliable, but it's not unreliable because it's overestimated. It's unreliable because it's underestimated. And that's CDC's own study says it, it undercounts injuries by between 10 and 100 percent. And so or 100 times, not 100 percent, 100 times. So I think VAERS has uh, 17,000 deaths. Um, reported and you know over a million uh, injuries uh, maybe well over a million it's something like that I and mean, James can look it up but in 1976 when they had this you know really bad flu shot um, that they did the same thing with they did a you know global rollout and everybody had to take it and they pulled the shot after 25 deaths reported 25 so now I mean there are you know we're living in a different universe now in terms of public health. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry has 
has captured the regulatory structure and, you know, and, and just changed the entire way that people think about public health. What do you think could be done about that? And what, what do you think you could do about that? Uh, you know, I think I'm, I, I am, and I, you know, I don't want this to sound self-promoting, but I'm ideally suited to do this because I, I've spent so much time litigating and writing about these agencies that I know how to unravel corporate capture. I know exactly what to do when I, I get in there. And for, for a lot of them, I know the individuals that have to be moved out and, and the kind of individuals that need to be moved in. But also, you need to get rid of these really corrupting financial entanglements between the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory agencies that has put agency capture on steroids. For example, Almost 50% of FDA's budget comes from pharmaceutical companies. They're not working for us. They're working for the pharmaceutical company with CDC. CDC has a $12 billion budget, and about five, almost $5 billion of that goes to buying vaccines in sweetheart deals from these, these four companies and then promoting them to the public. And so they're really partners with the pharmaceutical industry and the way that you get a promotion at CDC and the way you get recognition and salary increases and performing good performance reviews is by increasing vaccine uptake, not by finding problems with vaccines. And it's a, it's a really bad, it's no longer serving as a regulatory agency. NIH has probably even the worst if you work at NIH and you work on a on a vaccine or other medical product, you are allowed to actually to pocket royalties from that product. So any product that you work on, you can collect royalties on. Uh, you can collect royalties that are now capped at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for life forever, not just life, but for your children's lives, et cetera, as long as that product sold. You have marching rights for the patent. If you worked on it at NIH, so the Moderna vaccine, which is half owned by NIH, which means NIH will get half billions and billions of dollars from the sales of that vaccine, which they made, they're promoting. They're telling everybody, you need to get this. But also there's either four or six individuals who were Anthony Fauci's direct deputies who themselves are collecting $150,000 a year for life, forever, from that product. Although, so that the mercantile interests in making, those are people who are not going to find problems with the product because they're paying for their boats, they're paying for their mortgages, they're paying for their kids' education. I'm making sure that as many of those vaccines are sold as possible. So let's make kids take them. Even though there's no data that show they help kids, let's make every let's make pregnant women can take them, make everybody take them because they're cashing in on it, and that the mercantile you know ambitions have completely subsumed the regulatory function of those agencies, and and that has to end. You know, one of the things that we need to do too is to get rid of pharmaceutical advertising on television. There's only two countries in the world that allow it. One is New Zealand, the other is our country. Everybody who is knowledgeable is against it. Um, it and it not only has compromised, you know, has compromised public health. We now, we take largely because of that advertising, we take three or four times the amount of drugs as Europeans take. And drugs are the number three killer in our country. Pharmaceutical drugs, the number three killer after cancer and heart attacks. 
They're not making us healthier. We have, we spend more on healthcare, 4.3 trillion than any country in the world. And we have the worst health impacts. And we're behind like Mongolia, Costa Rica, Cuba, in terms of our health outcomes. Uh, all of these drugs, the pharmaceutical industry is not making us safe, safe, safer. It's not making us healthier. And, you know, we changed the rule in 1997. Prior to 1997, like cigarettes and liquor, you couldn't advertise on TV. We changed those rules and FDA allowed um, the pharmaceutical companies to advertise and they not only now have a platform from which they can tell everybody you're sick, you need this, you need that, um, but also uh, they are able to dictate content on television. So they can dictate content on the, you know, on the local And news. on YouTube. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That, that's a terrifying thing and it's so deeply interwoven. The, the question that I would have to you is like, how do you untangle that? How well, that, you do one of these things at a time, and I, you know, I'm going to go in there and do it. I'm going to issue an executive order on day one saying there's no more advertising on TV. Now, FDA needs to implement that through the regulatory process, but I also know how the regulatory process works, and I know how to hasten it. I know how to make it work faster for the American people. So, you know, I... Um, I don't, I, you know, I'm looking forward to doing this. I'm looking forward to telling FDA you're not taking pharma money anymore. You All these do it. controversial opinions that you have, have you had anyone debate you publicly about any of these? They, nobody will debate me. For 18 years, nobody will debate me. In fact, I've scheduled many, many debates, and I, you know, I've asked Hotez m many, many times to debate me. And I think you've asked him, here, why don't you debate Robert Kennedy? And he said, because he's a cunning lawyer or something like that. Mm, but, um, yeah. but I've debated Hotez on the telephone with, uh, you know, with kind of a referee. And, uh, you know, I, his, his science is, is, is just made up. He cannot stand by it. He can't cite studies. Well, he was trying to tell me that vaccines don't cause autism. I said, yeah, okay, and his well, daughter well, has I, autism, and yeah. he wrote a book. Yeah. That, but you I know, asked My him. daughter doesn't have that didn't get her autism from a vaccine, but I've read that book, and there is no science cited in that book. It's just him saying, you know, it didn't happen. And listen, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, and, I, and God bless him, and God bless that little girl. And, you know, I have nothing but... Um, you know, good energy going to them, and you know, uh, but it's not. He's using her as a leverage to tell people you, you know, there's no problem here. But this and, is my point that I, I asked him, what does? And he said, yeah. there's a, a few. There's environmental factors they're aware of. I go, what are those? And he couldn't cite them. Yeah. Like, how can you be so sure to say this definitely doesn't? But you're telling me there's a bunch of environmental factors that do cause it, and we're aware of those factors, but you're not aware of them, and you're an expert in this? Yeah. How is that possible? You're a, I mean, that, that's the main... He's a that, health expert. That's the big question that anybody who says it's not the vaccines, I'm like, okay, fine. But they don't want... If you but say it's me, not the vaccines, people go, ah, oh, yeah. good. That's, that's what I wanted to hear. That's yeah, what I wanted to hear. What is it? When you say it is the vaccines, people go, oh, my God, I don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it, yeah. and they get angry. They get angry at you, and they go, oh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. And 
But the fact that no one will debate you speaks volumes, especially now. They can't say now that you're not popular. And what's uh, crazy is that Biden now has decided he's not even going to debate anybody in the primary. Or uh, I, 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 I had a, I'll just tell you one story. The Connecticut state legislature was debating was uh, had a bill to end the religious exemptions for you know childhood vaccines in Connecticut, and the uh, head of the Democratic Party and the legislature asked me to come out and debate a Yale professor in front of the legislature, and I said, "Great, I'm from the Yale Medical School." And he called back and said, "There's going to be two of them, and it's against you, and um, they're going to get." two-thirds of the time and you get a third. I said, fine. And then he called back and said, there's going to be four of them. And you each get six minutes. And I said, that's all I need. And uh, it's not fair, but it's all I need. And so I fly out on a red eye. I get to the state house and it's me and four empty chairs. Somebody told them, or they all decided, I don't know, not to show up. And that's happened to me again and again and again and again. I agree to debates. And it seems like somebody gets a message, but, you know, who knows? It's obscure. No, but nobody in 18 years has been willing to debate me. What is that like to carry that around? I mean, I know you kind of described it earlier in the Sisyphus analogy, but it's, I mean, it's got to be insanely frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, you you really handle it incredibly well. Uh, I, you know, it is it's frustrating, but I mean, I listen. I look at these um, some of my friends that I've made over time who have children who are affected, children who you know were um, perfectly healthy kids who exceeded all their milestones and then they lost everything when they're two years. And a lot of these kids are so severely affected. Uh, they'll never, you know, hold a job. They'll never pay taxes. They'll never, uh, write a poem. Uh, they'll never throw a baseball. <clears throat> they'll never go out on a date with a girl or a boy. And, um, They'll never serve in the military, you know, and their lives are so constricted and the, the parents' lives are all so shattered. You know, these are, a lot of these parents, for most of them, because the children have these, you know, severe um, anger and violence and they have these tactile sensitivities and light sensitivities and don't like strangers, the, the parents uh, can't go out, they can't, you can't get a babysitter to take care of that child. And the parents just stop going out on dates. A lot of them give up their jobs. They, almost all of them, um, their careers are, are you know, really debilitated. And I see them going through that. And you know, anything that I go through is like nothing, nothing. So I don't, you know, spend any time thinking of myself. I don't. I just don't get frustrated by it because I, all I have to do is think. I'm here for those parents. And, uh, you know, and I'm lucky that, you know, I don't have to fight that battle because I, I don't know if I, what I, would do. I don't know if I could take it. What pushed you to want to run for president? I saw, 
you know, I grew up so proud of this country and loving, you know, this country and being proud. And, you know, we were, I grew up at a, a magical time in American history, which economists call the Great Prosperity. It's an, a, a, a time between 1947 and like 1980, when our country became the wealthiest country in the world, we, we developed the middle class like nothing that's ever been seen in history. We, that became this economic machine and a machine for democracy. And um, it, we, were, we were generating during that period half the wealth on the face of the earth we owned here in this country. Everybody wanted American things. America was, the, you know, it was a moral authority around the world. It was a leader, and everybody wanted our leadership. They don't like our bullying, but they wanted our leadership, and they knew the difference. But they wanted, you know, I, I would travel in Europe when I was a kid and with my father and my mother, and people just adored our country. And... Um, and but people wanted blue jeans, they wanted American cars, they wanted Victrola, you know, uh, RCA Victrolas and, you know, our electronics and uh, they wanted our movies and our television and I, you know, and they, they wanted our democracy. And, you know, I want my kids to grow up with that love for our country and that pride for our country. And I don't see the path from either political party getting us there at this point. I think, um, you know, both parties have lost their way. And my party, the Democratic Party, has become the party of war. It's become the party of censorship. It's become the party of pharmaceutical companies, of, you know, the neocons, this very aggressive, belligerent uh, foreign policy, that's forever wars. And, um, and then, uh, you know, if, the kind of political suppression that we saw and and this really this kind of this bizarre um turning our backs on the american middle class which is the only thing that sustains democracy if you don't have a middle class you cannot any political scholar you know political scientist will tell you that if you have large aggregations of wealth at the top and uh and widespread poverty below that that um, that formulation uh, is too unstable to support democracy. And nobody, and the middle class has just been wiped out in this country and nobody's talking about it. It's really, you know, and I think that's why, you know, Trump was so popular. Is he, you know, was talk, he was the one guy who was talking to those people. And, you know, and he's saying, and they're angry because nobody's listening to him. And uh, and Trump said, you know, I, I'm listening to you and I'm going to go break things for you. And they are angry and they want things to get broken. And I think, you know, um, we, you know, my father used to look at Latin America and, he, and it was the same thing back then. It was widespread poverty below and it was, you know, wealth above. And U.S. foreign policy was to sort of fortify those oligarchies and support with weapons, et cetera, the military juntas that were keeping those people in suppression because they were anti-communist. And my father said, there's going to be a revolution in those countries. And if, you, if we continue those policies, um, the communists are going to own the revolution and they're going to own the future. And we have to give aid directly to the poor and stop giving it to the oligarchs and stop giving it to the military. And that's why my uncle and father started the Alliance for Progress and USAID, 
to do something that had never done before, which is to develop middle class by funding the development of middle class of the poor. And I would say the same thing is happening in this country today, that we're, you know, where the oligarchs are running things and the military, and there, there's going to be a revolution, and either it can be owned by Donald Trump, or we can try to, you know, um, marshal and mobilize that energy uh, for a more idealistic vision of our country. And, um, you know, when my father ran in 68, he put together a populist coalition of left and right. And, you know, and he was able to do that. He was able to do that by telling the truth to people, including truths that they didn't want to hear. And he was, you know, on the last day that he died, the day he died, he won the, the most urban state in our country, which was California, and the most rural state, which was South Dakota. He had bridged the gap between, and when I, you know, I, I was with him when he died in Los Angeles, and then we flew his body back on US 2 on, you know, Humphrey's plane. Vice President Humphrey's plane to New York, and and then we waked him in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and the crowds just you know were it was like a flood of humanity on that um, on the you know on that street that the whole street was blocked, people standing ten feet deep for half a mile, and then we brought him from Penn Station in Washington. We he was in the caboose and the coffin, and then there was a, a train that we took to Union Station in Washington, D.C. And uh, the people on that train were the people who would have been probably the one of the, the, the greatest governments in, in the United States history. And um, and my uh, and that train ride was supposed to take two and a half hours. It took seven and a half hours because there were two million people on the tracks. And they were, you know, they were white people. They were mil people in military uniforms. They were Boy Scouts standing, saluting. I remember passing a, a Little League field where all of the people, all the kids on both sides were standing, holding their gloves and saluting. Um, and the coaches and all the people in the stand. There were Catholic priests, there was rabbis. I remember passing in Delaware. I was 14 at that time. Um, a, uh, a pickup truck that had six or seven nuns uh, in their habits, standing in the bed of the truck, and they were and they were waving rosaries and handkerchiefs at us. In the in the major urban centers, the, the train stations, we crept through at a crawl to avoid hitting people, but they were just jammed with people, almost all black people in Trenton and Newark and Baltimore and Wilmington. Um, uh, and they were singing the Battle Hill Hymn of the Republic. We had that, the windows open on the train. And uh, and then there were hippies and tie-dyed T-shirts. You can go look at the people. There's photographs of the people lining that track. You know, you can call them up over there, James, if you if you if if you if you find them. But anyway, when we got to Washington, uh, President Johnson was met us there and took us um, in a convoy, we rode past the mall. And when we got to the mall, there was there, my uncle or my father and Martin Luther King had been talking together and they were they were talking about how do we get poor people the right, you know, because the Vietnam War was sucking all the money out of the war in poverty. And they said, how do we get poor, poor people to get politically mobilized? 
And they said, we need to call them all to Washington, D.C. and have them camp here until Congress acts. And so King had died two months before. My father was now dead. Marion Wright Edelman had brought all these people there, you know, working for the two of them. And there were thousands of men that were encamped in these plastic shanties on the mall. And they all came to the sidewalk and they bowed their heads and held their hats to their chests. And we drove slowly past them up to Arlington Cemetery. And we buried my dad next to my uncle. Four years later, so that was 68, four years later in 1972, I was studying uh, politics in Boston and, and American history. And I came across this demographic data that showed that the people, the white people who had lined that train track and who had supported my father in Maryland and Delaware, Pennsylvania, um, and New Jersey during the 68 campaign in the primaries in 72 did not vote for George McGovern, who was very uh, simpatico with my father on all these issues, very much aligned. But they voted instead for George Wallace, who was absolutely antithetical to everything my father believes is a rampant, fierce segregationist. And I knew him very well in his old age. Um, but it occurred to me then, and it struck me many times since, that every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side. And the easiest thing for a politician to do is to appeal to our hatred and our bigotry and our fear, you know, and our xenophobia and, you know, our mistrust of immigrants or whatever. And that every once in a while, you know, politicians like my dad come along who, um, who have a different approach, which is to uh, get people, persuade people one way or another to transcend their narrow self-interest and see themselves as part of a community, as part of a, a larger adventure, you know, and, and be willing to take risks for neighbors who don't look like them because they feel like they're part of something important, you know, part of maybe reconstructing our country and making it live up to its promises and, and, and to avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind. And my dad was able to do that successfully. And I think, you know, that we have that opportunity now. And, you know, I, you know, that's why I, my father was able to do something that made people find the hero in themselves, you know, people to take risks, because it takes a risk to make a sacrifice or to believe in your community. And my dad was able to do that. And, you know, I would I would like to be able to do that to this country, for this country. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's the only way that we're going to save this country if people can find a way to unify, you know, people from the left and the right and to build the kind of populist movement that my father was able to build in 1968. What has it been like uh what the, what what has the experience been like for you of making the decision to run and then now running and having doing these interviews and seeing all these hit pieces written about you and even in the New York Times? What has this been like? Well, at least they're writing something about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'll tell you what it's been it's been it's been wonderful. It's been amazing, and you know, I'm I'm uh, my biggest worry is Cheryl. Because um, she uh, and she's happy doing it. Your wife, yeah, and she says to send you her her love. Um, but 
she uh but you know it's been good i mean i i we've gotten extraordinary traction and the thing is that i'm not going to win this by winning the sympathies of the mainstream media um i i really think these podcasts are, have the capacity to change uh politics in this country this year and you know it's interesting because in 1960 my uncle uh president kennedy had you know realized that this new media called television which had never been used in a political campaign before was a media that was very friendly to him for a variety of reasons in other words he was it was a media that he was able to master pretty well that um people liked to see him on it and uh, and it won him the election, which is one of the narrow, narrowest election at that time in American history. And then in 2016, Donald Trump recognized a new technology, which was Twitter, which uh, that he could communicate in this kind of way that was unique to him. You know, these kind of sound bites, very powerful sound bite. Um, you know, outrageous remarks on Twitter that got him these, you know, that, that built him an audience, a very loyal, and everybody thought he was crazy. Um, but he was able to take that technology and really, you know, turn it into a, and weaponize it uh, politically. Well, also and I, that and the, go ahead, please. Well, I, I'm not saying that's the only thing but that he did. He yeah. had a lot of other stuff going for him, but but he had a new media, as I'm, what I'm saying. And I think this year, the podcasts are going to be uh, are going to you know have the potential to revolutionize American politics because um, for the first time you can end run the mainstream media. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day that uh, CNN now has a viewership of I think something like three hundred fifty thousand people a night. Um, Tucker, when he was at Fox, had a had a viewership uh, at the end about 4.5 million. So he was 10 times as big as CNN. And you, at you know your your top, uh, like McCulloch, I think you were getting almost 40 million or something, maybe more. I don't know what it is, but you are then 10 times bigger than Tucker and 100 times bigger than CNN. And there, you know, there's a lot of people out there, and this is, for me, it's a good media, you know, for a variety of reasons, and I've been able to um, reach a lot of people, you know, uh, it's a very, very populist media, it reaches people who are on the far left and on the far right, and it kind of unifies them, and those are, you know, the audience that I think I am, I'm, I'm most likely to. If I, I mean, my campaign is about uh, bringing those two groups together, the left and the right, in a populist movement, and I think podcasts may be a formula for doing that. I think you're probably right, um, and I think there's a lot more that are going to be willing to have you on the question is going to be like what happens with those episodes on youtube <laughs> yeah you know we don't have to worry about this with that with this episode but what it you know with other people they would people that i know would probably be interested in having you on but you know youtube dangles those strikes over your head 
And they yeah, also dangled was... demonetization over your head, which is, uh, so say if you have an episode that's very popular but controversial, they'll, they can demonetize that episode, and if they choose to do so, you lose all the revenue, which could be pretty substantial. And so people self-censor because of that. Yeah, but the, the thing is that I'm not running on vaccines. Yeah, no, I understand that. Well, it doesn't I, matter, you know, if, if, if people, the, the only time that I will talk about vaccines is if somebody asks me about it. If you wanted to do this whole interview and never talk about vaccines, it would be yeah. fine for me. I mean, I think I'll, I'll never do an interview like this again, probably, because this is the only place I could do this and really sort of lay out the whole thing. Otherwise, this would not survive for two minutes. Right. And so I don't think I'll do that, but I don't need to do that because, I, you know, I have a lot of other issues. And my central issue is how do you rebuild the middle class and how do we get out of these forever wars? How do you get out of the Ukraine war? The, the Ukraine war is easy to get out of. I mean, the Russians have been wanting to settle that war from the beginning. Really? Yeah. I mean, the Minsk Accords was a settlement. And that was, you know, that we basically, you know, encouraged Zelensky. Zelensky ran. In 2019, here's a guy who's a comedian and a, uh, you know, and an actor, um, which I'm not saying in a disparaging way, but he's... You probably you know, should. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is those things, too. Yeah. So, um, but he... Uh, he, he uh, so why, how, did he win, how did he win with 70% of the vote? He won because he ran on a peace platform promising to sign the Minsk Accords, which was an agreement that Russia, France, and Germany had all agreed to, which would have left Donbass as part of, of uh, Ukraine as an autonomous region so they can now enjoy their own language, the ethnic Russians, and they, and they could, and protect themselves from attack by the central government, which was U.S., you know, installed central government. And... Um, and that NATO would stay out of the Ukraine. And that's what the Russians wanted. A pledge that NATO will never go in, which we should have made for them. We shouldn't, we have no business putting NATO in the Ukraine. We promised we'd never do that. We committed to it. And we've repeatedly violated those promises. And there's people in the White House who want this war. And they've said it repeatedly. Even President Biden has said the purpose of the war is to depose Vladimir Putin. And, um, and what, install a puppet government? Well, that's the thing. Is what, like, that's what, what the, the same people who, who got rid of Libya. Saddam Hussein yeah. cost us $8 trillion. And Iraq is now worse off than we found it. We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein. We, we forced Iraq into you know, this bondage to Iran, where they're now a proxy state of Iran. We've reduced that nation into a, you know, a, this incoherent mess that is just a, a, you know, a battle between Shia and Sunni squads. We created ISIS. We then had to do the Syrian war, the Yemen war, the Afghan, Pakistan. We drove two million refugees into Europe and destabilized every democracy in Europe for the next two generations and created Brexit. That's what we got for that $8 trillion that, you know, and the ravaged middle class in our country. The same people who we thought, the neocons, who ran that operation, lied to us about weapons of mass destruction tricked us into that war and who we thought were now out of government forever, pariahs, you know, in disgrace. They're now all back in the Biden administration with a new project. And, you know, Lloyd Austin, who's Biden's defense secretary, said uh, the purpose of the war for us 
is to exhaust Russia and degrade its capacity to fight any place in the world. Well, that's not good for the Ukraine, because the way we're exhausting Russia is by butchering 350,000 Ukrainian kids. I mean, we have turned that nation into an abattoir of death for the flower of Ukrainian youth. In a, in a geopolitical, and I'm not excusing blue Putin. Putin is a thug, a monster, a gangster who illegally invaded and didn't need to. But we need to take responsibility for the provocations which we have, you know, which these neocons have been have been provoking for, you know, for over a decade. And by the way, um, the reason we're in that war is because Americans are good people. And, you know, we were convinced, granted, we're using these kind of comic book depictions that they're now, you know, the military industrial complex is, is um, now expert at, at selling from us. It's kind of good versus evil, you know, all, all, this, this whole thing that gets us into these wars. And keep, you know, that, that war is a money laundering racket for, for the military contractors. The money is going there and coming right back. And then they all go on CNN, you know, the generals, et cetera, who, if you look at their resumes, they're all working for General Dynamics and the military contractors. And, and they tell us we need to be in this war and tell us horror stories, et cetera. Uh, but we're there because Americans are good people and they have compassion and they want to redress a wrong but. And by the way, my son went over there and fought. Yeah, you know, and he joined. You know, we he without telling us, he left law school and, and a summer job, and he went over there and joined the Foreign Legion and worked, fought as a as a machine gunner for a, a special forces unit during the Kharkiv offensive. So you know, I, I look, I, I the Ukrainian people, the valor of those people, and the you know the anguish that they're suffering is is, is beyond you know any description, but. Um, we need to look at our role in it, and we need to look for roads to peace, you know, and not not try to and, and try to end the killing. There's thirty to eighty thousand Russians with kids who have died there too, and you know we shouldn't be exulting over that. We, we should be trying to find find a settlement. The U.S. should be the grown up in the room that's saying, "How do we stop the bloodshed?" That's what we should be doing over there, and not to achieve these. And and I'll just say one other thing, Joe. That war's cost us one hundred thirteen billion dollars. That's the commitment so far. We, uh, CDC's entire budget is twelve billion a year. Uh, um, FDA or or EPA's entire budget is about twelve billion. We have fifty-seven percent of our our people in this country cannot put their hands on a thousand dollars to if they need to if there's an emergency. Twenty-five percent of Americans are hungry now, are not getting enough food. I have a friend who is a commercial fisherman who spent his life, on, you know, on the fisheries, had a business. Put it together, but because it's a private business, because he was working a lot for other people, he doesn't have benefits. He now has a disability. His son-in-law runs the business, but can't support him. He has a disability, and um, and he has been surviving on two hundred and eighty dollars worth of food stamps from the SNAP program, and that doesn't take you too far. But on March first, he got a robocall from the government saying your food stamps have been cut by 90%. You're now getting $25 a month. Try feeding yourself on 90 cents a day in this country. 
30 million Americans got that call. These are and that same month, we bailed out. We we printed 300 billion new dollars to bail out the Silicon Valley Bank, and we topped off the Ukraine war commitment to 113 billion. So. We got lots of money for the for the military industrial complex, lots of money for the bankers, you know, the banksters. Um, but we're starving Americans to death, starving them. And his because of all the inflation, we spent 16 trillion on the lockdown. We wasted, got nothing for it. Eight trillion on the Ukraine war. That's 24 trillion dollars that they had to print to pay for nothing. That money, the way they're paying it back, they're not going to tell us they're raised taxes because you can't do that. It's a hidden tax called inflation, and it hits the poor and the middle class, and it has dismantled the middle class in this country. Well, my friends, food bills for basic foods like chicken, dairy, and eggs has increased 76% in two years. To pay for the Iraq war, or the Ukraine war, the Iraq war, and the lockdowns. His food prices are going up. And now the government's telling him, while well, we have plenty of money for the military and the banks, we don't have it for Americans who are, you know, hardworking people. And, uh, you know, something is not right. We, we don't have, we're in a crisis in this country. We're in, you know, and we need to start looking at, we need to start unraveling the empire. We have 800 bases abroad. We were told after, in 1992, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were told we were going to get a peace dividend that the military expenditure was going to, going to go from $600 billion a year to $200 billion, And we were going to stop making billion-dollar stealth bombers that can't fly in the rain. And that we're going to take that money home and build schools with it and build infrastructure and give health care, good health care in the inner cities. And then none of that happened. And today, instead of going down to $200 billion, it's gone up. The total military expenditure, if you include national security, is $1.3 billion. And it hasn't made us safer. It's made us worse off. $1.3 trillion? $1.3 trillion. If you include... Yeah, I think you said billion. No, $1.3 trillion. If you include national, you know, the, the security apparatus and, you know, the, all the stuff that you have to walk through at the airports... And if you include uh, the $300 billion uh, to uh, the veterans, which you can't cut. You know, the veterans are, you know, are, they're, 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 we have 29 a day killing themselves. You know, this, this, these wars are not good for our country or our kids. And we need to stop being an empire and instead come home, rebuild the middle class, and then project economic power the way the Chinese do who are eating our lunch because they know not to prevent to project military power they to project economic power that's how you win the, the hearts and minds of the world and national security my my uncle John Kennedy you know did that he he refused to go to war so he he was surrounded by military industrial complex and um, and he learned very early in, in an intelligence apparatus that he realized early on that the purpose of the CIA and the intelligence apparatus was to create a constant pipeline of new wars for the, for the military industrial complex. The day, uh, uh, three days before he took the oath of office, 
uh, Eisenhower, who was the outgoing president, gave what is probably the most important speech in American history, which was, you know, where he warned against the military-industrial complex. I was at my uncle's inauguration. I was in Washington that day as a, you know, a six-year-old boy. And I was sitting on the stands behind him, at, during, in front of him during his inauguration. And he understood that. And two months later, the military and intelligence came to him and said, we got uh, we got to invade Cuba. And he was like, I'm not going to Cuba and I'm not going to let the military. And they said, well, we got all these Cubans trained and they're going to go attack Castro. And he said, well, we're, we can't, the U.S. government can't be doing that. We can't be attacking. We, we, I don't like what Castro is doing down there, but the, it's not the United States job to dictate what kind of governments other countries have. And they said, uh, well, as soon as they land, there's going to be a, a big revolution. Everybody's going to rise up and they're going to overthrow Castro. And he said, well, you can't use the U.S. military. And they ended up bringing those guys over with uh, United Fruit boats. And, and in the middle of it, in the night, they came to him and said, they're getting wiped out on the beach and you need to send in the military and invade. And he said, we're not going to do it. And he, he stepped out of that meeting and he realized they had been lying to him and trying to trick him. And he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And, um, and then... You know, for the next a thousand days of his presidency, he was at war with his military and, and intelligence apparatus. They tried to get him to go into Laos. He said no. They tried to get him to go into Vietnam with the combat troops. They said that we need 250,000 combat troops. He refused. Everybody around him wanted him to go into Vietnam. He sent 16,000 military advisors. as fewer people than he sent to get James Meredith into Ole Miss in Jackson, Mississippi to get one black man into school. He sent fewer in Vietnam. They weren't allowed to fight. Many of them did. They both violated the rules of engagement. In October of 1963, he heard that some of his Green Berets had been killed over there. And he said, I want a total casualty list from Vietnam. And his aide came to him and said, 75 Americans have died. He said, that's too many. And he signed that day a national security order ordering all troops out of Vietnam, U.S. troops. The first thousand over the next month, and then the rest by the beginning of 1965. And, um, and then a, a month later, he was killed. So, um, but what his view was is that he believed that the view of Americans abroad should not be, you know, a soldier with a gun. It should be a Peace Corps volunteer building, you know, wells. And it should be USAID helping poor people. And it should be Alliance for Progress building middle class. And that's what he did. And he just started the Kennedy Milk Program to, to you know, give nutrition to poor kids all over the world. As a result of that... In Africa today, there are more statues to John Kennedy, more boulevards named after him, more hospitals, schools, universities, avenues, and all the major cities named after him than any other president. And that is the, 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 the Chinese have taken that template and done the same thing now. And they are, you know, all these countries that were supposedly allied with us 
are now realigned with the Chinese and they're switching to their currency because the Chinese are not there to kill people. They're there, you know, to, to build roads, to build universities, to build colleges. And it turns out that people like that a lot more. And, you know, we should be projecting economic power around the globe and not military power. It will make us much stronger. But what do you think happens when you get into office? Like if you're, you're, you're talking about your uncle who's assassinated and you believe the intelligence agencies were part of that, what happens to you? Well, I gotta be careful. I mean, I'm aware of that and I'm not, you know, I, I'm aware of, the, of that danger. And, uh, you know, I don't live in fear of it, um, you know, at all. But I'm not stupid about it, and I take precautions. So, you know, I, um, I do things that I don't want to do. In order, and I live my life now, you know, in ways that I don't want to. I like to be out, you know, shaking hands with people and going alone into communities. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's things I can't do anymore. You know, so and I, but I do it because I know, um, I know those risks exist, and I know that I, you know, pose a big threat to many vested interests that, um, you know, uh, and and that there that there is a danger a danger in that. Well, uh, I think I think we'll wrap it up here. That was uh, three hours. <laughs> Joe, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you. Uh, I appreciate your your courage and uh, your conviction and just the way you think. Appreciate it very much. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right.